From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Last year, the world watched Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kill George Floyd in plain sight after arresting him for an alleged counterfeit bill at a convenience store. The footage released from the encounter sparked an international movement as protesters took to the streets for months, calling for racial justice and an end to police brutality. On Tuesday, after weeks of arguments, the jury released a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, find the defendant guilty. Derek Chauvin convicted on all three counts in leaving the courtroom in handcuffs. Outside the county courthouse where the trial took place, the mood was celebratory and emotional as thousands of demonstrators gathered to show their support. Here's Sierra, a demonstrator who says she ran out of her house when she heard the news. God showed up for our city. And it's like the first time justice has ever really been served. And for black people, we've been through so much shit. And so this is, this is huge for us. This is amazing. Demonstrator Osmond's reaction was more tempered. For him, this verdict is just the beginning. It's like first class view, first city view of racism, you know. The man murdered another man in front of the world. There's a lot more that needs to be done. There's too many George Floyds that were not caught on camera. Yeah, I'm here to celebrate and show the world that we're not asking for change, we are demanding change. I believe racism cannot be deformed. Racism needs to be replaced and we have systematic racism here in the state and that needs to be changed. Osman is right. While this verdict is a step towards police accountability, the systems that enabled this act of violence, namely white supremacy, remain. To learn more about what can be done to dismantle white supremacy and replace policing with meaningful community solutions, I talked to ACLU's policing policy advisor, Paige Fernandez, just after hearing the Chauvin verdict. As a committed advocate and Black woman, Paige was a flurry of emotion and conviction. I don't want to understate what a historic moment this is, especially in Minnesota. This is the first time a white cop has been convicted of killing a black person. And that is that is huge. You know, over 99 percent of police killings don't result in a conviction. So this is a historic moment. And we are glad that the jury made this decision and found him guilty on all counts. We do believe he was guilty of murdering George Floyd. But I think it's important that we don't equate accountability with justice in this moment. There is an ounce of accountability that has been provided to George Floyd's family and to his community. But true justice would be George Floyd being able to go home to his family today, would be George Floyd still being alive today. I think it's critical that we differentiate. I think it makes a lot of sense that we have this moment where we are feeling a ton of emotions and that this feels, part of us feels like this feels good, right? But I think it's critical that, you know, this one conviction, it is not the norm. Officers often act with impunity. 
And this does not mean that our entire system is changing. It would have been a mockery of the system if the jury came back and found him not guilty. There was an enormous amount of evidence against him that we don't usually have in these types of trials. Having the police chief get up there during the trial and say, yes, this officer violated policy and yes, he should be convicted is huge and something we really haven't seen, something that's unprecedented. So while this is a big moment, I can't imagine them coming back with any other decision. And I think it's crucial that we embrace this moment that I hope this provides some healing and peace for the Minneapolis community, for George Floyd's loved ones, for his family and his friends. I hope that they can sleep better at night. But I also know that we have so much more work to do after this. You know, you and I spoke on this podcast almost a year ago now when protests over George Floyd's death had just erupted. And I want to look back on that a little bit now that we have the verdict in our hands. To start, I asked you how you were processing it all back then, and I actually want to play your response here. It's felt like everything's moving so rapidly over the past week that, you know, I haven't been able to take a second to sit down. And quite frankly, I feel a lot of anger is like pretty much the only emotion that I can access right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a hard, it's, it was a loaded question when it was just COVID-19 that was the focus of the world, um, but particularly in this climate um, where we're seeing so many egregious uses of force, people are being murdered at the hands of police, protesters are being arrested for nonsense. It's a really difficult, challenging time. You know, hearing that, how would you answer the same question about how you are processing it all now? Yeah, it's still a challenging time. It's been a challenging year. I think, you know, hearing myself say that everything had been moving so fast, everything has moved so fast. I can't believe that we're here almost a year later having this discussion. It feels like it was just yesterday. It does feel like everything has moved so rapidly in the past year. I think being angry was, I mean, that is exactly how I feel. I feel like maybe my anger right now is, I have a lot of conflicting emotions, but I think my anger, right? I feel more scared right now that people are going to fall back into complacency with this verdict. And I think that's kind of, where automatically my head goes right now is that we got a guilty verdict. People are just going to be complacent. Oh, our legal system worked. Look at that. And I think it's critical that we say, no, this is not going to end police killings. This one prosecution, this one conviction is not going to end police killings. But I also, my heart feels a little bit lighter than it did last year and knowing that hopefully folks can find some healing in this verdict. And I think it's been really hard to find any form of healing over the past year. But it is, it's a lot to sit with. And it is the cycle of trauma of like being a Black person in the United States. I mean, we are sitting here talking about this conviction. What's going to happen in the case of the person who killed Dante Wright? We can talk about this, but a young 20-year-old Black man was just killed a week and a half ago at the hands of police 10 miles away from where this trial was taking place. So it's a, it's a hard time to wrestle the emotions of like, I'm glad that this verdict came back the way it did, but we have so much further to go. And there is so much 
horribly wrong with our system that it's it's kind of overwhelming at times to think about it. Fully acknowledging that this is not an endpoint and that accountability within the criminal legal system is one form of accountability, but not necessarily the form that solves for everything or anything. But even within the sort of, you know, the system that we are working within, you know, we talked last time, you pointed out that it is really, really hard to hold any police officer accountable. And while Derek Chauvin was held accountable here, you've also told us in the past that that is the exception to the rule, that police are treated as one above the law and that police unions generally make it very hard to hold police accountable. And I actually want to play you the clip here as well. There are so many layers built into protecting police. Police, despite being tasked with enforcing the law, are treated as though they are above the law. And that special treatment is literally written into state statutes, into local policies, into police department policies, and into police union contracts. So in most places across the country, officers can legally use deadly force and kill someone even when the force is not necessary and when they have other alternatives available to them. The other thing I want to lift up is police unions. Mm. Police unions are an enemy, quite frankly, to systemic reform and to holding police accountable. Police union contracts across the country are harmful and only serve to protect the officers and not the communities they purport to serve. How do you hear this in the context of the Chauvin verdict? Does this verdict change anything for you? Anything in how you think about police accountability? Absolutely not. It does not change any way that I feel about police accountability. I think, as I said, that it would have been an absolute travesty if the jury came back and found him not guilty, especially considering just the mountain of evidence against him and the rarities. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about the blue line falling and the rarities of having officers speak out against other officers, having the chief speak out against one of his former employees. This is incredibly rare. And I'm not encouraged by the verdict. I don't think, you know, according to Campaign Zero mapping police violence, 99% of police killings don't result in a conviction. So this is that 1%, that 1% that results in some type of conviction. But I stand by what I said last year. Police unions continue to be a problem. State laws continue to be a problem. It's the infrastructure that upholds the power of police. And we need to really tear down that infrastructure that has allowed them to act with impunity for decades and decades and allowed them to do anything they want. But it's critical that this is one instance, one instance in where someone was held accountable for their actions. And it was an incredibly egregious incident that happened to be caught on camera from multiple angles with tons of witnesses and a lot of experts who were able to provide testimony. I just think it's critical that this is not the norm This is not what's going to happen moving forward. And to just point out, you know, the role that police unions and other police associations continue to play in this. I mean, it was police unions funding Chauvin's defense attorney. They were funding his defense. And, you know, I want to be very clear that the ACLU believes everybody has a right to a trial. 
But, you know, just to explain, you know, you have the police chief speaking out against this former employee and the police union protecting this former employee. And so you continue to even see in this verdict how police unions have used their power and just the overwhelming influence they have on blocking accountability from every angle. You know, another point about looking back to last June is that so much of what we were talking about and what everybody was talking about, because that was the starting place, was what the police should not be doing. Right. So like they should not be first responders for mental health crises. Suddenly, you know, all of us were talking about this. They should not be the points of contact for low level offenses. And the ACLU, along with many in the space, you know, unprecedented adopted a position of divesting from the police and reinvesting in communities. And I'm curious, you know, now um, these months later, how has that conversation evolved? Yeah, I think we just have to acknowledge how far we've come. And I just want to shout out to like all the Black abolitionists and organizers on the ground and advocates who have been doing this work for so long, because I think we are in an unprecedented time where last year people were like, defund the police. What is that? That's a wild idea. To where we are a few months ago, where Miriam Kaba wrote a book on abolition and it was number seven, I believe, on the New York Times bestseller list for a few days. Like that is that's huge to have a book on abolition be number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. I can't imagine that happening before last year, before the uprisings. So I think we have come a long way in opening people up to new ideas. I think right now where we are is really trying to, and I'm sorry I've said this so much, but really re-examining public safety, right? So we know what we don't want police to be in, but defunding, divestment, abolition is not an absence. It is a presence of justice and healing. And it's so important for us to now focus on the affirmative vision of that. Yes, we literally want to take the police's money away and move it into other resources. And so what are those resources? What makes people feel safe? What does public safety mean to everyone? I think there are amazing groups across the country in Seattle, groups in Philadelphia who are engaging in, you know, these shifting the narrative. What does it mean to be safe in community? There was a poll of Philadelphia, over a thousand Philadelphia residents of what keeps them safe and what their idea of public safety is. And there's a whole campaign around like safety we can feel, right? That is not relying on police. And so I think now we are really moving into an era where our demand is very clear. We literally want to take money away and reduce their roles, responsibilities, and power. But let's talk about what we're going to have in the absence of police, because it isn't an absence. We're talking about the presence of true justice and true healing and true opportunities to allow communities to thrive and to not have to come into contact with police or the criminal legal system. And has the talk and the education, have you seen it lead to concrete changes already on the local level? Yes, we definitely have seen this move to concrete changes. I think there have been, you know, a lot of wins over the last year. I think it's important to emphasize that local municipalities, which really do have the most power when it comes to determining responsibilities and funding, especially funding of police departments, you know, on the state legislative level, the federal legislative level, we've seen far less movement. What I'd say they're doing is kind of focusing on Accountability, which we're talking about, is completely different from justice. They're focusing on, okay, what happens after? How do we hold somebody accountable after they hurt somebody that they purport to serve? And what 
municipalities in some places have been focusing on is how do we ensure that they don't hurt someone in the first place? And so there have been changes implemented with moving traffic enforcement out from under the Berkeley Police Department into entirely new civilian-led department, which would ensure that, you know, the number one way that people come into contact with police in this country is through traffic stops. So that is a fantastic way to reduce police and community member contact is to have civilian-led, unarmed people leading traffic enforcement of traffic violations instead of cops. Minneapolis divested $8 million from the police department in December of this year during the budget session, which was huge. Shout out to like Black Visions Collective, Reclaim the Block, all the amazing organizers on the ground there who led that effort. And in addition, they were working on a ballot initiative called Yes for Minneapolis that is really all about creating an entirely new department of community safety and violence prevention, of which police are only one part of. And so trying to take a holistic and public health-oriented approach to public safety instead of focusing on this punitive approach that our police departments perpetuate. There have been other examples across the country, including in places like Denver, where they've piloted alternative services to respond to people in mental health crises, and a lot of changes in Seattle, including direct divestment and moving a ton of responsibilities out from under the Seattle Police Department into other civilian-led unarmed agencies. Philadelphia was able to block increases in the police budget last year, and so there really has been movement around transformational change so that we are limiting contact between community members and police and taking away their money and investing it in true community-based, community-led services that foster a much better environment of community safety. Do you think that as some of these changes take effect in more and more places, that that will have an effect on the fear that people have around the notion of divestment or defunding the police? Yeah, I absolutely do. I'm really glad that you asked that question because I think when we show people that there are alternatives and that they can be implemented and this is not just some pie in the sky idea, that this is something that people have been working on for decades. Like this is alternatives. There are people who have been developing alternative models who propose these solutions for decades. These aren't just coming out of nowhere and that they're well thought out and that they really are impactful and effective. I think it's really going to help move people. I think having a program like CAHOOTS in Eugene, Oregon to point to, which is an alternative response program to people in mental health and behavioral health crises. And that provides like wraparound services, not only emergency response, but also wraparound services. What's wraparound services? So being able to like help people with housing or if they need to go to treatment for some type of substance abuse, you know, it's not just, hey, I'm responding to your crisis. Let me also provide you with the resources you need so that you don't have a crisis in the future. And so being able to point to a program like Cahoots and tell people, you know, not only did it save the city millions of dollars, it greatly limited police contacts. They only needed to call police a few times in an entire year that they received one in five 911 calls were diverted to Cahoots. Being able to show people that I think was critical in setting up some other infrastructures. And I just want to provide this example and also shout out my colleague, Carl Takei, who brought this to my attention. But we talk about this piloted program in Pittsburgh called Freedom House. And basically up until 
I think it's like 1970s, the only way to get into hospitals, the only way to get transported when you're having a medical emergency is either through the police or through a hearst from a funeral home. And so you are either calling the funeral home or the police to transport you in a medical emergency to the hospital. And so folks in Pittsburgh, Black folks predominantly, gathered and were like, there has to be a better way to do this. We do not want to be calling the cops during medical emergencies. And that's where they came up with a program of training people to respond to medical emergencies and bring them to hospitals where EMT services came from. And I don't think people know that they are kind of a new thing that came up in the past 40 years, right? EMTs, we now are, we think, oh, we're calling an ambulance during a medical emergency. I'm not thinking a cop showing up during a medical emergency. But back then, that was the norm. But all these many years later, nobody can fathom calling a funeral home to get to the hospital or calling the police to get to the hospital. And so there are alternatives and we can truly live in a different world. People were living in a different world back then and we have the opportunity to live in a different world in the years to come. What's interesting about that example too is that it's an example of calling 911 and a dispatcher doesn't then alert the police. The dispatcher diverts the call to medical help, which I think is, you know, sometimes people are like, but how? Like, how would that work? But that example is a great example of what we already just take for granted, which is you call 911 and there is an option where the police are not the ones that are triggered into action. So, you know, in many ways, it's like, how will we already have it? You had mentioned earlier fear, fear of complacency, fear that people would feel like, oh, good, we're done. There was accountability, so there will be accountability going forward. What would you tell our listeners to do next? How do we push the culture change forward on policing and sort of stave off the complacency? Yeah, I would say we have so much more to do is the first thing. So do not become complacent. And that there's so much power in community building and community-based organizing. And I think it's really critical that everybody tunes into their community and meets their neighbors and talks to people around them about what they need and the needs in their community, because those needs are what are going to inform the alternatives that we develop. Um, And especially because so many of these alternatives are being piloted on a local level that you know, community members do have a significant amount of power over their local municipal governments. Um, We have more power over them than we do over our state governments or our federal governments. They represent a smaller constituency. And by virtue of that, we have more control over what they do and what they implement. And so we have the power to go to city council and say, you need to implement mobile crisis teams to respond to behavioral health crises or mental health crises. And they cannot have co-responders with them of police. We can push that on the local level. And so I just encourage people to really start community building and also look into the grassroots groups in your town, in your city, in your municipality, in your jurisdiction that are is already doing the work. I can almost 100% guarantee you that there is somebody or a large group or multiple groups of people doing amazing work already on the local level and to follow their lead. These are people who've thought about this for years. These are people who have been invested in this for years, not just since last year, but have been really thinking about the solutions we need to implement. So 
Listen to your local black leaders, listen to them, uplift them, follow their lead and continue to push for an entirely new world. We have to be creative and imaginative and it's really up to us to decide what world we want to live in. Well, Pitch, thank you so much for being with us today and 10 months ago and also last week. I think last week was a really good indicator that we are not done, that we are just beginning. And we so appreciate your guiding us along the way. Thank you. Appreciate you. What's his name? Say his name. Say his name. What's his name? Our work is indeed far from over. In the last weeks, we've learned of three others killed by police. Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, and Mikia Bryant. Demonstrator Broderick hopes that the precedent set in the Chauvin trial will lead other communities to provide accountability and change. I hope that we can be a pillar and beacon to light to other states and other places that, uh, you know, we, we, we matter. Uh, we have a voice as well. We just want to spread the love and show community and camaraderie and show love. That's all you got to do, show love. Thanks to Sierra, Osman, and Broderick for sharing with us. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to support our work to divest from policing and reinvest in community resources, please visit aclu.org liberty. Until next week, stay strong.